been coming out of this season of Passover, um, and I was about to say coming out of a season of resurrection, but I never want us to come out of a season of resurrection. We're just going to perpetually stay in the season of resurrection. Because the resurrection is not just a, it's not just a time of the year where we celebrate it. We are people of resurrection. We are those called back from the dead. We're those made alive, resurrected by Jesus Christ, and awaiting the fullness of that resurrection. So we've been resurrected. I was crucified with Christ. I was raised with Christ, and I will be raised with Christ. Thank God. I don't. Thank God. This body doesn't have to last much much longer. And by I mean much longer. I mean in in our view it does, but. In the view of eternity, it's like this, right? Thank God for that. So what we're going to do is we're going to go through, because last week we talked about some of those conversations that Jesus had in the 40 days he spent with his disciples right after the resurrection. And we primarily spent some time on his, 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 his building up back up again of Peter, that, that resurrecting Peter back to that place of ministry, uh, out of the place of guilt, out of the place of, of betrayal, and back to a place where he could be trusted with ministry, not just say, I, I'm forgiven, but I'm trusted again. That's the kind of restoration God wants to do. But right now, we're going to go f- even further than that. And for the next few weeks, uh, we're going to be spending some time reading and, and, and taking in some of the first sermons that the world ever heard from the church. The sermons in the book of Acts, the, the, the evangelistic messages that were preached to the crowds. I mean, I'm telling you, there were multiple occasions in the book of Acts where thousands of people were born again. I'd say that's a message worth hearing, right? Maybe you might pick up some tips from this. Maybe you can pick up some encouragement. But not only that, it's not just, I find when I read these messages, even though uh, many people were saved by hearing it. And even though we would classify it as an evangelistic message, when I read these sermons, I don't just say, well, I'm saved, so I don't really get much out of this. I mean, the same message that saved those people is, is building me up, is restoring me, is bringing me to faith. And so I'm praying that God will do a work through these messages in your own life. So we're going to go and start with that very first sermon in Acts chapter 2. And this is, this is coming out of the day of Pentecost. As most of you will know, the book of Acts begins by first the writer, Luke, telling us this is a continuation of Jesus' ministry that, that he wrote about in, in the book of Luke. So Luke is meant to be part one. Acts is meant to be part two. It's, it's meant to be a continuation. And one of the coolest phrases right at the beginning is when Luke writes this, he says, in my first account... Theophilus. And so his first account is the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke that starts with the birth, well, starts before the birth of Jesus, starts with the prophecy about John the Baptist, and ends in the death and the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus Christ. So we would say that's the fullness of Jesus' ministry. But Luke says it this way, in my first account, I told you about all that Jesus began to do in his time of ministry on the earth. And that's such a powerful statement because he's about to start the rest of the story, which is the book of Acts. And I love how he puts it. He says, in my first account, the gospel of Luke, I told you about all that Jesus began to do. A lot of people think that when Jesus died, rose again, and then ascended to the Father, that was the fulfillment, that was the completion of his work. But that's not what Luke says. Luke says that was just the beginning of his ministry. But what's the rest of his ministry then? We're about to read it in the book of Acts, and we're about to live it in our life right now. His ministry continues, right? So the, the, the time that Jesus spent on the earth was the beginning of his ministry. How is Jesus ministering through you and I? How is Jesus ministering on the earth today? The Bible tells us we are his body. He does not have another body. Jesus isn't from time to time saying, well, the church is dropping the ball. I'm going I'm to come down myself and preach a couple of sermons. I'm going to bless the mic. Get, hand that to me. You guys, are, you guys are doing terribly. Let me do it. No, we're the body. And, and doesn't that put some energy in your life when you say, my goodness, I, I'm, I'm the one. We're the ones, rather. We, the church, are the ones that Jesus left to do his ministry. 
to carry his ministry, to carry the torch. And we've been given the same name, the same spirit, the same mission, the same love, the same word. Read John 17. Everything that Jesus had, he gave to his church. The Bible says the church is his body, the fullness not the partialness, not the, not, the, not the little bit, but the fullness of him who fills all in all. And so what happened when he ascended, he told them, right before he went up to the Father, he said, I want you to stay in Jerusalem, the same city in which the people had cried out for Jesus' crucifixion, the same city where they, the disciples had been locked inside uh, houses for fear of the people. I'm sure they only, I'm sure all of them would, would want to go home to Galilee. Go home to a friend, friendlier crowd. Go home where it's a little bit less hostile. But Jesus says, stay in this city until you are clothed with power from on high. What a great statement, until you are clothed with power from on high. And he promised them the Holy Spirit. And they did exactly what Jesus said. They stayed in the city. At some point, Peter goes, and he's looking, he's reading his Bible, and he sees that his buddy Judas that betrayed Jesus and later hanged himself, he sees that that was actually foretold hundreds of years before, thousands of years in the Old Testament. And so in the book of Psalms, he says, this is what it says, that, that this man would do this, and this is what would happen to his body, and all of this. And it says here in, in the Bible that another man will take his place. And so he used that. And the church embraced that as a prophecy for them. And so they elected another. They, they said, Lord, help us choose another person to fill Judas's role because there's got to be 12. And when they did that, they stayed in the upper room. And they didn't leave. And they waited. Then on the day of Pentecost, and they didn't know they were waiting for the day of Pentecost. We know that. They didn't know that. On the day of Pentecost, there was a sound like a mighty rushing wind. So the Bible doesn't say there was a wind. It says there was a sound that sounded like a rushing mighty wind. It was a sound like a hurricane sweeping through the building. And then they saw tongues like tongues of fire. It doesn't say it was actually fire, but they were like tongues of fire on top of their heads. And they all began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And, and it spilled out into the streets. And a crowd gathers. The Bible says there were people f that had come for the feast from, every, uh, from different nations and, and, and places in the empire. All Jewish people that had come to celebrate the feast in Jerusalem. And, and when they saw this crowd and they heard the sound, the Bible says they were devout people. There was these devout people that had come. They, they honored God. They were looking for God, and they heard the sound of these people praying in another tongue, speaking in another tongue. And the Bible tells us that when they heard this, 120 people speaking in other tongues, they each heard them in their own language. So now you may have read that and thought that, 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 that 120 people and somehow God said, you're speaking Parthian, and you're speaking Arabic, and you'll speak Greek, and you'll speak Hebrew. But that's not what happened. Because the scripture says, the, the, the crowd said, each one of us, each one of us is hearing them in our language. They're not saying, hey, one dude is speaking my language. Hey, can you imagine if 120 people were speaking different languages? Would that sound like mush or what? Like, would that sound intelligible to you? No. They, they, this is the miracle. They're comparing notes and going, each one of us is hearing them speak our language. How's that possible? I, I imagine they start comparing notes and going, hey, man, how do they know Arabic? And the other guy goes, you mean Latin? No, Arabic. They're speaking my language. He goes, no, no, they're speaking Latin. They're speaking my language. And they begin to compare notes and say, no, we're each hearing them in our language. So there was a miracle of interpretation. The Holy Spirit was interpreting these heaven, this heavenly tongue so that they could hear it. And then Peter takes his stand. And this is, this is so amazing because I, I know I've said this uh, so many times to you guys in the past few weeks. But remember, only a few weeks before, they were afraid to go near Jerusalem. And their fears were confirmed when Jerusalem shouted for Jesus' crucifixion, so much so that they bullied a Roman governor against his own will into crucifying Jesus. The same city where they locked themselves and hid from, they're now standing in broad daylight. They've been going to the temple saying that Jesus is risen. 
And Peter takes his stand, and the 11 other apostles don't hide in the back corner. The Bible says they took their stand with him. There was a boldness on them that they hadn't had before. There was a boldness that the resurrection gave them. There's a boldness that the Holy Spirit gave them. And they're all standing up together. And here's what Peter preaches to the city that he used to be terrified of. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 14, But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea, and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose. Now, why, why did he have to say that? Well, the Bible tells us that there were devout people from every nation that heard them testifying about God. But it says there were others mocking and saying they're filled with wine. They're drunk. Peter, here, Peter knows this. He's aware of it. So he stands up and says, these men aren't drunk like you think they are. For it is only the third hour of the day. It's only nine in the morning. Which I had to have a conversation with Peter and go, Peter, what time of the day do you think it's appropriate to be drunk? He's like, we're not drunk. It's nine in the morning. Well, okay, Peter. Let's move on from that. But we need to have a conversation later about your, your lifestyle choices, I think. He says, but this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. And the sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And listen to this. And it shall be that everyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, will be rescued. What a powerful, what a powerful sermon. Now, so far, all he said is he's just quoted the scripture, which to you and I sounds like a good way to start a sermon, but, but think about what he's saying. He's saying something that, that previous to this, he hadn't connected the dots on. Remember how the disciples in, in the Gospels constantly struggled to put together that Jesus was fulfilling prophecy? And even the two guys on the road to Emmaus, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, didn't get that the word of God had spoken, that Jesus, the Messiah, would have to suffer and die and then rise, that all of that was in the word. And when Jesus spent time with them and walked with them, the Bible says he opened the scriptures to them. He opened the scriptures. Now, how many times had they opened the Bible physically? Had they, now, maybe they didn't have, they, of course, they didn't have their own Bible. The Bible was in expensive scrolls. They'd go, but they'd go to the synagogue, and they'd hear the word. They were raised since, since the time that they could even listen. They were raised hearing the word taught, the scripture taught. It was opened physically for them many times. But Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, opened it spiritually to them, opened the scripture to them, it made them able to understand it. And he showed them himself from Moses onwards. Now, that doesn't mean from Moses the man. The first five books of the Bible are called the books of Moses. These are the books that Moses wrote. So from Genesis on, Jesus showed himself in the Scripture. Showed how everything that happened had to happen. How it was all foretold. How it was all prophesied. And they said, didn't our hearts burn within us? As he opened the Scripture. So do you see what the Holy Spirit does? The Holy Spirit invades our religious mindset because our religious mindset would love to learn about this Bible as if it were us learning about the War of the Roses or us just, you know, learning about the, the Mongol Empire. It's, it, a spirit of religion wants to turn this into a dead text, just a dry document that has some history, some moral values, and, and just some stories we can learn from. But the Holy Spirit brings it to today and says it's alive. And one of the things you see about the church that's filled with the Holy Spirit now is they begin to say, this is happening. Which is a 
remember, every time that this happened when Jesus was on the earth, the religious leaders got mad. Every time he implied that he was the embodiment of what Scripture had said would happen, they got mad. And when people went into, you know, paraded in front of him, going into Jerusalem and said, Hosanna to the son of David, implied he was the Messiah, they got mad. Anytime he, they quoted the scripture and, and seemed to say, it's happening, they got upset. Peter comes up and says, this is what Joel was talking about. How many of those people knew that verse? How many of those people knew that passage, but they never said we're living in it? How many people today read the Bible, quote the scripture, but they never realize there should be living in it? It's alive. He says, this is that. Then he says, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with the miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men, and you put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. So Peter is saying, this is the guy, he's the Messiah, he's the man that we've been waiting for, and oops, you murdered him. So that's, that's on you. Notice he says two things. First of all, you put him to death, but it was God's plan that Jesus was living out. So you didn't interfere with God's plan. This is a tricky thought because while it was God's predetermined foreknowledge that caused Jesus to go to the cross, and Jesus proved it. He said, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down. Nevertheless, Peter is putting it plainly out there. You guys hold some guilt for this. You put him to death. And you used godless men to do it. So you can keep your little hands clean. You say, well, the Romans did it. It wasn't our fault. The Romans actually did the, the, the dirty deed. They put him on the cross. He said, you did it. You used the godless men to do it. Well, let me just say, when I read this, I, I, don't, I don't get into specifics about who do we blame more, the Jews or the Romans. It's humanity that put Jesus on the cross. I put Jesus on the cross just as much as they did. My sin put him there. So we don't get to say, well, this, this nationality, those, those Italians, I knew it. I never trusted those Italians. <laughs> you don't get to say, oh, you know, it was, well, it was his own people. Yes, all of them and us. Had we been there, we would have. And yet, here's the message. I mean, can you think Peter's like standing in front of the city that yelled for Jesus to be crucified? I would have eased into it. Told a few jokes, warmed them up a little bit, complimented them. He goes right into, you're Messiah killers. How do you feel about this? I mean, he's not hiding. He's not scared anymore. And then he says this. He said, but God raised him up again. You may have put him to death, but God raised him up. And I love that statement that it was impossible for him to be held in the power of death any longer. It was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, now once again, he's going to bring the Old Testament back, and he's going to show him, this is, this is, the scripture is alive here. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exulted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades. Nor you, will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Then Peter picks up and says, Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. So his point is this. David said you won't allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You won't abandon his soul to the grave. To Sheol, to Hades, you won't let his, his you, you're not going to let him rot in the ground. And Peter says, guys, he was dead and buried. His, his grave is here. There's just bones left. He's saying, I'm telling you, David died. He's saying, David died, was buried in the dirt, and was decaying. So obviously he's not talking about himself. He's talking about somebody else. And Peter is connecting the dots through the Spirit. Who's he talking about? He says, it was, he says, I assure you that, that David both died and was buried. His tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet 
And he knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on the throne. He looked ahead and he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, a resurrection of the Messiah. Now this, this is a statement that isn't often talked about, wasn't often talked about in Peter's day. They talked about the Messiah all the time, but Messiah is like Rambo. He just comes and kicks you know, everybody out, and he, 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 does, the, he does whatever is necessary to, to make all the bad guys bow. But there's not a lot of talk in Peter's day of the Messiah dying and having to be resurrected. That's not a thought these Jewish people have had. Because in, in, in the way they've, in the scriptures they've picked of the Messiah, he just comes back and conquers. But Peter said, no, no, he had to die. Remember, that's what Jesus had to show those two disciples. He had to show them that he had to die and be resurrected. So Peter is saying, this was David prophesying, looking ahead of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus, God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses, Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this, which both you see and hear. See, I believe that the gospel, when it takes a hold of a group of people, when the Holy Spirit fills the church, and when, when people are, are baptized in the Spirit. Now, the word baptized means to be soaked in, to be dunked in, to be immersed in. When there is a church full of the Spirit, you can see it and you can hear it. Right? They don't have to, like, pull you aside in the corner sometime and be like, actually, did you know that we have the Holy Spirit? Did you know that? I mean, it's, we, we don't let you know that until the third Sunday, but actually, we've got the Holy Spirit. Well, as Peter says, like, this is what you're seeing and hearing. It tells me maybe, maybe, that when those guys were mocking them for being drunk, it wasn't just the speaking in other tongues. Because you know what? You hear somebody speak another language. You're walking around in Jasper, and you hear somebody speak another language. You don't go, psh, drunk. Right? Some lady just speaking Japanese, psh, she's drunk. She's wasted. Wow. So it's probably not just that they were speaking another language. They're probably acting a little different. Probably acting a little different. Probably act, I mean, you draw your own conclusions, but they're probably acting in a way that civilized people don't act at 9 in the morning. Because they're so full of the Holy Spirit. It's okay. It's okay to be so full of the Holy Spirit that you get accused of things you're not doing. Just keep it holy, right? Here's, here's what happens. He says, this is what you've been seeing. This is what you've been hearing. And he says, for David, it was not David who ascended into heaven. But he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So he's showing them from the Psalms that the Bible prophesied, foretold centuries before, that the Messiah would not only suffer and die, but that he would rise again, that he would not stay in the ground, that he'd be risen, and that he would ascend to heaven and be seated at the right hand of God. And he says, guys, we can all agree David didn't do that. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, or Lord and Messiah. Know that Jesus is Lord, and Jesus is your Messiah that you guys have been waiting for. That's good news, isn't it? Guys, I've got good news. This Jesus I'm telling you about, he's the one you've been waiting for. He's the one you've been looking for. He's the one you've been taught from the very moment these kids were, were, would be sent to, to uh, uh, school and, and, and learn. Even before they were sent to school, they were learning the Torah. They were learning the Psalms. They were learning the Scripture, the prophets. This Jesus, God made him to be Lord and Messiah, Lord and Christ. And then here's the chaser. Jesus whom you crucified. And it sinks in again. Oh, yeah. I for, for a minute, I forgot that part. I was getting all pumped up, Peter, and then you reminded me again. We killed him. Let me just ask you this question. Do you think that Peter is going out of his way to be manipulative and, and try to manipulate their emotions and make them feel a certain way? No. But do you think he's 
being more led by their reaction or being more led by God's reaction? Do you think he's seeking God's pleasure or seeking their pleasure? Right? He's fearing God, not fearing people anymore. He's not fearing people. Now remember, it was the fear of people that caused him to deny, deny Jesus three times. But now he's not afraid anymore. See, see, when Jesus was on trial, Peter wouldn't even admit he was with Jesus. Now he's straight up telling them, you crucified the Messiah. What a shift. And what he's saying is, is everything that the Holy Spirit wants to say to them. He's confirming who Jesus is. Now, you cannot read this sermon and not see Jesus in every verse. It's all about Jesus. Jesus is the center. And that the Bible tells us that Jesus is the stone that the builders rejected. Who are the builders? His own people that he came to. The people that should have known. And he was the stone that they rejected, but now he's become the cornerstone, the chief cornerstone, the, the most important part of the building. So Peter does not put Jesus on the side. He doesn't just mention him. He is everything here. And the first thing they got to know is who Jesus is. He's the Messiah you've been waiting for. He's the Son of God. He's risen, he's alive, he's ascended to the Father, and he has sent his spirit just like he promised. Now he's telling them, guys, you need to be honest about the fact that this is the same one you crucified. But watch this, this is their response. In verse 37, now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. They were pierced to the heart. Have you ever been pierced to the heart? I have. Some translations say they were wounded in their conscience. Some, but whatever it is, it went right to, directly to the, to the core of who they were. It cut right there. It cut past their preconceived notions, their prejudices, their biases. It cut past their education. It cut past all of the things, all the little defense mechanisms that we intellectually put up to not feel like we're wrong. Cut right through it all. Hit him right in the heart. And they said, brethren, what should we do? Because I'll tell you, when the word of the Lord, when the word of God in the power of the Holy Spirit pierce your heart, you're never neutral. God's word and God's spirit will never leave you neutral. So one of the things that we have to realize and we have to reflect on is, is, this, is my heart in a place where I can receive this? Is my heart still able to be pierced by the Word of God? And of course it can because the Word of God can pierce even the hardest hearts, but the question is how do you react when it does? Because only a few chapters later, we encounter Stephen. And when Stephen has been preaching the gospel in his synagogue, his Greek-speaking synagogue, so he, he didn't go to the Hebrew-speaking ones. He was a, a, a Greek-speaking Jew. And he starts speaking in the Greek-speaking synagogue, saying, Jesus is the Messiah. And they put him on trial. They say, you blaspheme Moses and you blaspheme the temple. We'll talk about that one later. But when he defends himself, here's what happens. The Bible says that those religious leaders that put him on trial, they were cut to the quick. Cut to the quick is pretty similar to pierce to the heart. It went right down to the middle of who they were. You feel exposed for a moment. You feel like somebody really sees me and I don't like that. And then when they were cut to the quick, whereas these ones said, brethren, what should we do? What do we do? The religious leaders got angry. The Bible says they put their hands on their ears. They yelled at the top of their lungs. They gnashed their teeth at Stephen. They clapped their hands at him. They were trying to make noise so they didn't have to listen to him anymore. And then they dragged him out and threw him down a steep hill and began to stone him to death. That was their reaction to being cut to the heart. Nobody's going to be neutral. I bet there's people in the room today that when God first started speaking to your heart, Somebody dragged you to a church service or something pulled you here, here or somewhere else, and maybe the first time you just wanted to leave, you just want to go out that back door. Everything in you says, I don't want to, I don't have to listen to this anymore. I can't stay here. Now, that's not everybody. I, I, I've seen it both ways. I've seen people get angry. I've seen people, like, say, I, when will he stop talking so I can run to the altar? I've seen both. 
One time we were in Loon Lake and I was preaching and I, I, I've told, forgive me if you've heard me tell this story before, but I, I remember two guys that were, two young guys, and they were cutting through the church parking lot. Everybody cuts through our church parking lot in Loon Lake on the way to the bar, <laughs> you know. <laughs> it's just faster. <laughs> and so these two guys, these two guys, I don't know why they were going to the bar because they were already way past the point. Like they were gone. And instead, as they're trying to go past the church, something just pulls them in. And they go in the church. We asked them later what happened. He goes, I don't know. I was trying to go to the bar. And like, <laughs> I was trying to go to the bar. I was already drunk. I wanted to get more drunk. And I, I felt like I had to come in here. Two guys come in here and they sit right back in the, near the back. And I had a sermon plan. I had a message plan. And right when I got up to speak, I felt like the Spirit of God just put, preach on the prodigal son. So I said, okay, I will. So we just switched gears, preached on the prodigal son, and I get right near the end. I'm about to make up what I think is a good point, and that guy stands up. One of, the, one of the young guys stands up and goes, that's me. He goes, that's me. And so then you, you're faced with the point, like, do I tell him to sit down? Let me finish. <laughs> or do you just let your ego die and go, okay, we're done. This is it. We're done. Paul, when he was in Lystra, stopped preaching when he saw the man had faith to be made well. You got to know when to shut up. Right? This is, not about, this is not about making a polished sermon that you can later put online and it sounds good. This is about the Holy Spirit doing what the Holy Spirit wants to do. So, so I stopped. I said, okay, guys, do you want to receive Jesus? Do you want to give your life to Jesus? And they said, yeah. And this guy came up, his friend came up and and it, I've seen this happen so many times where somebody who's drunk or high, the Holy Spirit just sobers them out just like that. Like they're, 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 they're not there and then they're there. And he, Both of them like gave their life to the Lord, confessed him as Lord, gave, gave themselves. And it was just a dramatic moment. But I remember thinking this is what's supposed to happen to all of us when the word is preached in the spirit. We say, that's me. We're pierced to the heart. We're cut to the quick. And when Stephen did it, those guys got angry. When, when it happened here, they were repentant. Jesus tells us the same seed is sown on different ground, but it's the condition of the ground, the condition of the heart that determines whether the seed is going to go in and bear fruit or whether it's just going to be picked up by the birds or, or, or die in a time of drought or be choked out by thorns. It's, it's your heart when you receive the word. And so the question is not whether or not the, the word has the power to pierce to my heart. It's how will I react when it does. And a good reaction is, is sometimes when you don't know what to do, just to say, what should I do? And Peter says this. Repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. For the forgiveness of your sins. Hallelujah. How quick was that? They went from realizing they had murdered the Messiah to being offered forgiveness in a matter of minutes. He didn't say you must walk 1,000 miles on your bare feet on broken glass. But here's how you pay for it. Because how could you ever pay for it? He says repent. Turn around. Change your mind. Come back and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Why? Because it's that name of Jesus Christ that's able to save you. It's what Jesus did that's able to save you. Not any amount of feeling sorry is going to be enough. Not any amount of paying back is going to be enough. It's got to be the name of Jesus Christ. It's got to be what he did. And he says, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We have gone in a matter of moments from, uh, uh, from putting you on trial for the death of the Messiah to giving you a gift, not a sentence, not jail time, not an execution date, but a gift of the Holy Spirit. And isn't that what the gospel does? See, the gospel, one of the first things that happens when the gospel is preached it's not, it is, it is good news all the way through, all the way around. It's good news. But sometimes it doesn't always hit right at first as good news because the first thing it does is make you aware that you need it. The first thing you need to know is that I need a Savior. 
First thing I need to know is I did not measure up to God's law. I have fallen short of His law. But the free gift of God, the wages of sin, the just return for my sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life. That's why Paul said we are the fragrance of Christ to God. We smell like Jesus, but to those that are perishing, we smell like death. Because the first step of the gospel is you realizing, I need a Savior. That's not a bad thing. You know, we, we shouldn't be afraid to let the Holy Spirit do this. Where the first realization someone has is, hang on, I thought I was good. I thought I was fine. I thought I was on my way to heaven just because I had done some good things. I'm not. That realization hits you like a bag of bricks. Oh, wow. I, can you imagine feeling this? I crucified the Lord of glory. I crucified Jesus. I, I crucified the Messiah. My sin put him there. And each one of us has that same realization. But to then... When repentance comes, what does the Bible say? The sorrow that is according to the will of God will produce repentance without regret, which leads to salvation. The only sorrow that you're meant to partake in, there's a sorrow according to the will of God that says, don't do that. That's not who you are. Now, before you were born again, that is who you were. And it reminded you, I'm dying. I'm guilty. I'm, I'm, I stand condemned. I need a Savior. Here's your Savior. Sometimes I, I sometimes we, we, we look at someone's face and we just say, oh, no, 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 it's okay, it's, it's okay. Let me, tell you, let me tell you the good stuff real quick. But just for a moment, is it okay that the Holy Spirit is working on them? And in this moment, there is a realization, I need a Savior. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Poor Poverty is not a state of, of having a certain amount because, listen, there are people who consider themselves poor here in Canada that in another country would be considered fairly well off. It's relative. Poverty is a state of saying, I don't have enough. To be poor in spirit says, I don't have enough. I'm not enough without him. And when you're in that place where you say, I need him, he's in that place where he says, come. The cross has made it all possible. Repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Not only that, but listen to this, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. As many as the Lord our God will call to himself and somehow when Peter said that, your name was there. You were those that are far off and God called you to himself. And with many other words, he was solemnly testifying and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Can we say that today as well? You need to be rescued from this perverse generation. So then those who'd received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. So these weren't just 3,000 souls that signed a card. These were 3,000 people that were all in. Huge, right? It's all because the Word became alive again. Somehow it was alive, it was active, and it cut. It pierced them to the heart, and they knew it. Do you believe that when you preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, when you proclaim it, when you speak it, when you have a conversation about it, when you are talking to somebody, when you are, are, are you know, writing to somebody, do you believe that the Holy Spirit can do this in the same conversation? Do you believe that the power of God's Word and the power of His Spirit can come together and pierce to the very core of someone's heart? Do you believe that? And how do I respond when it pierces? That's how I want to respond all the time. Lord, what do, I, what do you want me to do? Because throughout our lives... God is still speaking, right? He's still cutting past all of our nonsense that we put up there that we try to make ourselves look good or try to make ourselves look special. He cuts all right through it, all right to the core of who we are. Read this in Hebrews chapter 4 with me. Some of you already know this verse really well. But I want you to see it. I want, I want it to come alive 
again to you. Hebrews 4, 6. He speaks of uh, a rest that God has prepared for his people. And he com- he's comparing it to the Old Testament Israelites who did not enter the promised land, the, the land of rest. They, they could have, but they didn't. They didn't believe, right? It was unbelief that kept them out. Hebrews 4, 6 says, Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, this rest, right? Because when you stepped into the grace of God, when you stepped into the blood of Jesus, you rested from your ability to do it. You said, I, I'm going to have to enter into his work because my work couldn't get me there. My work was not enough. I have to enter into his work. And when I enter into his work, I'm entering into his rest. That means the work is finished. The work is done. The work for your salvation is accomplished. Praise God. Amen? So let's enter it. He says, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience. He's talking about the Israelites not entering the promised land. He says, he again fixes a certain day today. So the day that you're looking for is today. And that's what the book of Acts is so full of. A bunch of people saying, someday the Messiah, one day the Messiah, someday God. And the church coming along and going, hey, you know the day you've been talking about? It's today. Over and over again, they go, today is the day. Today, saying through David, after so long a time, just as it's been said before, today if you hear his voice. Don't harden your heart. Every time God speaks to you, you have a choice. You can't stay neutral. If your little kid, if, if, they're, if they're going somewhere they're not supposed to go in the park, they're running away or whatever, and you go, hey, hey, come back here, and they look at you for a moment. You remember the look that a toddler gives you? Where they're sizing you up, they're seeing if you're serious, like they're finding the line, they're going to find like how far are you willing to go. You're, you got your finger on the nuclear button, but I'm crazier than you are. Right? They know. And they look at you. And have you ever had your child, like you tell them to do something, and they look at you, and they just don't do it? Now, some kids will go to you, no. <laughs> oh, no, right? But let me ask you a question. Is it any less disobedience if they say no or if they just ignore you and just do whatever they're doing? It's both disobedience, isn't it? So sometimes we as Christians think, well, I never said no to God. He never said it. But, you're, but you lived it out. You didn't say no to God, but maybe you said someday, sure. You just kind of ignored it. Well, that's a no. Uh, no answer is an answer, right? So for the Israelites that, that, that were told to go into the promised land, they just said, that's an answer. That's a no. So he says, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. You can't stay neutral. <laughs> this is fun, isn't it? Don't harden your hearts. Look what he says in verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So what, what he's saying is, this is not just about the promised land because they got the promised land and they're still talking about it. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Because the work is finished, isn't it? The work for your salvation, the work for your righteousness, your redemption has been completed on the cross. Therefore, let us be diligent. So even though that work is done, I still got to be diligent. So I'm not lazy. I'm diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. For the word of God, listen to this, is living and it's active and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow. And it's able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. See, we say a lot. We put a lot up on social media. Or we put a lot up, you know, in, just to be when we're, when we're putting ourselves out there to the world. But the word of God and the spirit of God doesn't really care about your social media profile. It's it's. It's not about what, how you want to be seen when you come to church or how you want to be seen when you're at home or in the park or at the restaurant or wherever. It will judge, it'll pierce right to the real, the real issues, the thoughts and the intentions of your heart. It's able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight. But all things are open and laid bare 
to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. That's what I mentioned earlier. Sometimes that makes us very uncomfortable to know we are fully seen. Someone knows you better than you know yourself. You're laid open before him. And here's the response. A a sin-conscious response is to hide. Adam and Eve, when they sinned, they hid. They did not want to be seen by God. God's first act was to kill an animal and clothe them with its skin. They had already clothed themselves with fig leaves. They had already clothed themselves with plants, but that wasn't enough. Something had to die. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. That's why God had to kill an animal and clothe them in its skin, in in its hide, as a foreshadow of what Jesus would do for us. And so when we're laid open, the first response is to get out of here. Get, let me get out of this room. I feel seen. I feel known. I feel uncomfortable. I don't know how often we as churches sometimes strive to make people feel comfortable. How can we make you feel comfortable? How can we say, how can I preach this in a way that makes you feel comfortable? But really, comfort is not the thing we're seeking. It's, it's transformation. It's salvation. It's life. Do we trust the Holy Spirit? Yes. Do I trust that he loves you more than I love you? That that he cares for you more than I care for you? Why are we so afraid that if we bring our friend to church, the the preacher might say something a little bit too far in this way, or, 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 or maybe the praise and worship gets a little wild, or somebody in front of me shouts when you should be quiet. And we have all these fears that somehow we're going to be uncomfortable when that's the very thing that God is trying to do is stir us up again. Wake us up again. Get us out of our beds and get us into life. You get pierced to the heart. You feel laid open. And the word of God is judging the thoughts and intentions of your heart. Have you ever had somebody say, it was like me and Tia went to, we, we had one of uh, our fathers in the faith uh, give us premarital counseling before we got married. And I picked this guy because I knew, I know all the right answers that preachers want to hear, but he won't buy it. He knows. And I don't know how many times he said, you don't really mean that, Jonathan. I was like, yes, I do. But I didn't. The thoughts and intentions of your heart are being laid open. And here's, here's, here's what comes after it. Listen to this. This isn't a coincidence that they come right together. Because there's a therefore, which is a connecting thought. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens... Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast, let us hold tight to our confession. What's your confession? My confession is I am saved by his blood. I am redeemed by his life. I am raised by his resurrection. It is only by Christ. I've been crucified with Christ, and the life I live, I do not live. I live by faith in the Son of God. It's no longer I that lives, but Christ that lives in me. That's my confession. Let me hold tight to that. For we don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses. We have one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, do you notice all these therefores? Don't ever cherry pick a verse that starts with therefore. Put it together. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence. Now, the word confidence in the Greek means to speak boldly, not just to feel bold or not to be bold, but to speak boldly. What are you speaking? I'm asking for help. I'm doing the same thing those guys said to Peter. What do we do? Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. See, the first thing that happened is the Word of God showed you you had a need. The Spirit of God showed you you had a need, and then it drew you to Jesus. Because there's only one place that that need will be met. Your need is a Savior. Your need is a high priest. And you come closely. You come close, and you come boldly. Now, you say, well, of course, that's how I got saved. Right, but he's not talking to save people at this moment, is he? He says, we have this high priest. We have a high priest. He says he's not tempted like we are. So it's not just talking about 
this, this idea of needing to be saved uh, from hell. He's also talking about being saved from the temptation that's, that's beset you, this thing that's trying to hold you back, this thing that you can't admit to anyone because if I did, they wouldn't see me the same way anymore. But I'm laid open. I'm pierced to the heart. I'm cut to the quick. And the response is this, and, and, and the book of Hebrews goes on later and tells us that we haven't come to Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is the place where they were so afraid of God that the very, the very sound of the trumpet, the sound of his voice made them terrified. The animals couldn't even touch the mountain where God was because they knew if we touch it, we die. So great is our sin and so great is his holiness that if we touch the mountain, we'll die. That is the realization of who we are without Jesus. But he says, now we have come to Mount Zion. And at Mount Zion, it's not, there's not fear that drives you away from God. There's a holy fear that draws you to God. Now I'm not scared of God, but now I reverence God with a righteous fear that says I need you and draws me close to God. And it says, at this mountain, the blood of Jesus cries out better things than the blood of Abel. The blood of Abel speaks of the guilt, the guilt of that murderous guilt of I killed, uh, that, that Cain felt. He killed his own brother. That guilt was upon us all before we met Jesus. But now his blood cries out better things for us. And this is the gospel. And this is the power of the Spirit. And I want you to know that the same Holy Spirit that was in Peter when he preached this message in Acts 2 is the same Holy Spirit that's in the church right now. It's in you. should be in you. The same Word that, that was alive and active as he preached it. So that now they're not just saying, well, the prophet Joel was a prophet that lived hundreds of years ago, and he spoke about some things that we, we would be good. It would behoove us to understand them. No, this same spirit that said what Joel said is happening right now. We cannot afford to relegate the faith we have into just pure academics. Thank God for academics. Uh, we should learn. But it can't just stay in that area of just being an intellectual pursuit. Let's just learn about the Bible like we're learning about ancient Egypt. It's got to be alive. And when it's alive, it cuts. It's alive and it's active. A living word is an active word. An active word is going to invade some space in your life. How can you stay the same after you hear it? You can't. You're either going to get hardened or softened. So the question today is, are you being hardened or softened by the word of God? Is your heart harder when you leave or is it softer when you leave? The sa I've said this many times before, but the same sun that hardens the clay will soften the wax. Which one are you? Which one are you? Are you going to be hardened or softened by the word of God? What's my response when I'm laid open before him? My response should be, draw near with confidence. Come into the throne of grace and go, Lord, I need your help. And he says he's got grace and mercy to help you in a time of need. Because he's not a high priest that goes, why in the world would you feel that? He was tempted with everything that you're tempted with. And he knows it. Yet he conquered it. Today I want you to come boldly. And I also want you to be able to preach like Peter preached. I want you to be able to share like Peter shared. It may not be that you're standing on top of a, a balcony in Jerusalem. You might be, or in a marketplace in Jerusalem, you might be at a coffee table at Second Cup over there. But resist the urge to skip over the part where the Holy Spirit does His work.